Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the football fan and terrorist legend Bill Gardner. In the 70s and 80s, when football violence was at its height in England, Bill Gardner became a legend. From the meanest streets of East London, he built a reputation as the toughest man at West Ham and eventually the toughest man in football. Ask any fan who stood on any terrace during those years and they'll know the name Bill Gardner. Now in his 60s, Bill is reflective and self-aware about his violent past. Crucially, he knows where his demons stem from. A shockingly brutal and traumatic childhood. I've been a West Ham supporter all of my life and from an early age was well aware of the Bill Gardner mythology. I was pleased that he agreed to come on the reset and I felt privileged that he was so honest, open and vulnerable with me. This is a really surprising chat. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Bill, welcome to the reset. Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Um, I've just reread your book, your second book, um, The Man, The Myth, The Legend, um, and enjoyed it greatly. And and for anyone who's unfamiliar with it, you know, it's really unique among books by, you know, former football supporters. This is not the sort of book that you are used to reading. This is a book that is um, really insightful, really reflective, extremely honest about your life and really more about the background and the child and the upbringing you had that led you to become the sort of young man you were. And I found that so amazing and honest. How difficult was it for you to open up about the sort of, you know, traumatic experiences that shaped you as a kid? Well, what happens is like all men, you don't want to say or do anything that's going to embarrass you. It took us nearly three and a half years to get this book out. Mm. And, um, like I say, it was hard for me because speaking about your parents in not a good light is not a thing that I like doing. I mean, today, for instance, on my way around here to do this with you, I um, went to my mum and dad's grave and cleaned it, which I do every five or six weeks. And uh, and I will always do it. So whatever they was to me, they will always be just my mum and dad, and I will give them the respect they deserved. A lot of people 
have issues with their mum and dad from the past that they carry around with them when they get older. Um, it's, but it, it, for some people, it can be really hard to forgive stuff that, you, that your parents have done to you if you think it's damaged you. But you, you obviously have found it within yourself to forgive your mum, who I know you had a particularly troublesome relationship with. Yeah, I forgave my parents and everyone else in my life that's done me wrong. It's all water under the bridge. And you have to be a confident person in yourself and believe in yourself to come out the other side of these things. Because mm. it is difficult. And it's always better to talk. Because if you have a problem, if you talk about it to someone, a problem shared is a problem halved. And I've always believed that, that a lot of men don't want to talk about if they've got mental issues or other issues. They don't want to say nothing because they don't want people to think, oh, you know, men don't cry. Well, I can assure you men do cry. And I've cheered up more than most probably any man on the planet. Wow. Take us back a bit, Bill, and, and for those who haven't read the book yet, tell us about the circumstances that you right. grew up in. Right. My, my mum and dad had a four-year-old daughter who died of leukaemia, and I was born four years to the day after she died. So they thought they was going to get her back again. Instead of that, they get big, ugly meat. Uh, my dad... Uh, had mental issues. He had a electric shock treatment. And my mum went the other way. She became a spiteful and uh, not that nice. To the outside world, she was the doting mum. Indoors, I was beaten with sticks, with pieces of rubber. Um, she used to touch me inappropriately. And uh, I didn't know the better. I was a kid. I was a little kid, and I thought that's what everyone was up to. Never give it a thought. I just thought that was what it is life's about. And then as I grew up and as I got older, I realised it's not it's not a, a dumb thing, and it was wrong. But, um, you know, that's gone now. I love my mum and dad, and I still do now, and I will always. They was wrong, but who knows what led them to be like that by losing the daughter at four years old. None of us know that unless you've done it. So you've got to face face the problems you've got and not let the demons win. And this mm. is what I believe that all men should talk, all women, if they've got mental issues, please talk to somebody, share it, and it's hard. And have comp always have confidence in yourself because one thing, if you do have mental issues, and a lot of people will say this, that you can be lonely in a crowd. You can be surrounded by 30, 40 mates. You can still feel lonely. And I felt that for most of my life. You, uh, you, you ended up um, homeless for a period after, after leaving home. Uh, tell us a bit first about why, why you had to leave home well, and how old you were. Um, my mum... Uh, booked herself out of hospital after an hysterectomy. She walked home from Rush Green in Romford, Torn Church, where we lived. And um, she just went mad. She thought she saw somebody killed in the bed next to where she was laying. She attacked the nurses. She walked home, God knows how many miles. It must be a good three, four miles. And um, she just, she, she lost it. She lost the plot. And the night that confirmed everything for me was she was trying to get through my mum and dad never slept together for 30-odd years because my mum had a boyfriend 
we lived opposite and they had nothing to do with each other. And uh, she was trying to get through the door with a bread knife and it was like the scene from The Shining. And my dad was crying and he said, you've got to leave here. If you don't leave here, she's going to kill you. And uh, so I'll give it a two or three weeks, done a bit of fact finding, sorted out what I thought I needed to take with me. And I was um, late 14 in age. Right. And um, I managed to find a place that I felt was safe, which was in a graveyard in Allgate East. And I lived in there for about 11 months. Um, it was grim. It, it was lonely. and uh, But like most people who know me know that most of my life I've been a loner. I've um, done things my way. You know, there's, there's my way and there's my way as far as I'm concerned. It don't always agree with other people, but they don't live my life, so I do it the way I think. How did life living um, on on the street uh, affect you as a young man? Well, I never ever put me out for money. I worked. I used to go to uh, Finchley Road, sorry, Finchley Road, and uh, people used to come down wanting two labourers, and you get a job. And I was a big lad. I was really big. I was really strong for my age. And um, I was an hard worker. So I got the work, I, I had money, and then I used to go back and do what I could with it. But like anything else, it wasn't a great deal of money. That, and people who hire people like me know that. So they just give you the bare minimum in them days. So because I was big, a couple of the boys I worked with, the gypsies I worked with, said to me, why don't you ever go the fighting, pit fighting? Pardon me. I didn't know what they meant, but what it is is you dig a hole out, 12 foot by 12 foot. You go down into the ladder and you have a fight. And the one who wins the fight wins the money. So I had four of these fights and I won four. One was a lot harder than I thought it would be, but you've got to remember I was 14, just 15 when I'm doing this. I think I was just 15. And I had four of these fights. I heard myself... Um, Close to eight thousand pounds. Wow! Which was a lot of money in them days. I could, I could have bought a flat for five, but somebody once questioned me about if you had that money, why did, was you homeless? It's quite simple. I was fifteen years old. I was a runaway. So if I went in anywhere and said that I want to pay you cash for it, they'd got in contact with the police, social services, and I'd been rounded up and put in care. Which in the end I was done. But what it did is it meant I had money to buy food. Days I didn't feel like going to work, I didn't, and there was plenty of them. And uh, I just used to live the six days a week that I was like that for the one day when I went to watch West Ham United. You know, the, the most probably I honest, be honest to say, was the biggest love of my life because the people there become my family. And and you must have been lonely. Must have been a lonely life when you were living that way. So I yeah. guess West Ham rescued you from those feelings. Yeah, yeah, they did once a week. And then you got back and then you started looking forward to it on a Thursday. You start looking forward to the Saturday. And, um, you know, you feel bad. You, you're sitting there on your own. You most probably spoke to two people all day. And uh, you just feel lonely. You just, you just feel worthless, lonely. And I, I wasn't on drink or drugs or nothing like that. Not like now where... 
we live in on on Sunday. I went to Brighton to football, and West Ham fans were fighting each other, and it was because of this Charlie they stick up their nose. It's poison to them. I can't believe that so many people have this shit because what they do between me and you and the lamppost, it brings out the worst in people. And it's not a football thing, it's a social thing. And I think something's got to be done before it leads to more people suffering more mental health problems. Now it's rife. Everywhere you go, you go in any toilet, you see like the white on top of the pan where they've had a sniff and all that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible, really. It leads to people being not what they are, you know? It leads them to having no compassion, um, being rude, and having no respect. I mean, respect, let's get it right, respect and take that out of the English dictionary. We don't seem to have none of that no more. If um, when, when I was in the grow, I, I hid the money in the walls because the walls were decaying. Some of them had holes in so you could get something behind it. So obviously you tied a bit of rope around it, you pushed it through bit of string, pushed it through and so that you could come and get it another time. Nobody would have ever done. I went back, I think, three or four years later and there were still two and a half thousand in the wall, which was handy, you know. Yeah. I bought my first car with that, never run, stayed outside my house and never moved. <laughs> By the shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> I ended up giving it away, I think. <laughs> um, uh, you know, obviously at football, you, you develop this reputation for um for being tough for being game you you were a fighter from very early age did did that in your opinion come from apart from obviously you had a physicality you were built for it but mentally did that come from the feelings that you know of of like i don't know trauma or or anger or shame or any of the other stuff that you carried with you from childhood yeah i think so i think they had a big thing to play with me i mean i was uh before I ran away, I was sent. I was quite ill, and I was sent on convalescent to a convent in Broadstairs in Kent. Um, and I tried to escape from that, and I got caught by the mate, the sister, whatever her name, sister Felicia, her name was. And um, I come home, and I never felt I was wanted. My family, I never felt they wanted me. They wanted my sister Anne, not me. Mm. But uh, my mum used to put on a good show. She was she was really professional. She used to like put. Um, lipstick and rouge and all these sort of things on her neck and tell people my dad had strangled her, strangled her or tried to strangle her. But I know for a fact my dad never laid a hand on her. I never, ever saw him do that. And mm. so I don't believe he did. So your, your dad was a, a reasonably, was like a gentleman. My my dad was a, was a gentleman. Yeah. I don't ever remember my dad um, hitting me when I was a kid. It was my mum who used to do all the uh, dishing it out. I remember my dad kicking me up in the air when we used to play football over the fields, but if I if I beat him, that was it. I was in orbit, you know what I mean? He kicked me <laughs> up in the air. And, uh, but I think that was just his way. But, you know, I, I don't hold that against him. Um, not many people in the time I played football, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and, and your mum, you say in the book, you know, she wasn't averse to jumping over the bar and, and, and having no, a go at bar, bar staff sometimes. Yeah. Well, no, in the shop. This was not in the. Oh, in the shop, right? If she had to let me up with anybody, and she did, she didn't like this when we worked behind the uh, counter in our local supermarket. She jumped over there and assaulted her. She, she was, um, she was very violent. My dad was very placid. Mm. Uh, I never ever met my dad's family. I never, met, you know, ever. I wasn't allowed to meet his family. 
Um, Why was that? Because that that family was half gypsy. So they sort of like disowned my dad until the end when he died. And then they all come round and asked me if he left any money. And when I said no, they, like I said in the book, they, they, they all went and took the carriage clock with them. But, you know, it's, these things are all there. There was... I, I never had no one in my life, and, and I think this is the main thing if people are suffering. You can say all you want to somebody. Say, for instance, you were suffering and, I, and you get the normal reaction of pull yourself together, snap mm. yourself out of it, but you can't do that. But what I've always found that with, with friends I know that are suffering, and everyone suffers at some stage, put your arm around them. Say, look, mate, you know, I'm ever so sorry, but I'm here for you. And I find that that's better than all the snap yourself out of it bullshit that people give. And once they suffer with it themselves, they understand that sometimes that little touch is better than a word. How long did it take you to, like, understand and, and learn these things about life and about how important compassion is? Um, quite early, I think. I think most probably early 20s, mm. um, realised that, you know, you can change what you are. You know, I mean, what, like Rocky said, I can change, you can change, you know, and we all can. And uh, I'd like to think I'm a good person now. I've got friends that support nearly every football team in this country and people know what they get with me. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'll talk the truth and I would help anybody. But there's a lot of people on this planet that, that don't want to help anybody. But I would. And that's maybe what my my purpose on the planet is. You know, and that's not, not only including people, animals, birds, everything. You know, that's the way I am. Like, you know, where I live, people, you know, know me. I look after a disabled dog at the moment. My son's got a dog that's got rickets that have been mistreated, and I help him look after her. When, um, you know, uh, football hooliganism was in its like sort of heyday, as you might call it, and, and you started to develop a very big reputation first just amongst football fans, but then eventually in, in the wider media as well. Yeah. What, um, what did you think of the misrepresentation? In what ways did you think that hooliganism was being misrepresented in the media and by politicians? Because I listened to you and I think, well, there was a lot of men who were probably troubled in the same way you were who perhaps needed a bit more understanding. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I knew a few in the group I was with that were loners, the same as me, really, but being together, knitted us together. And, you know, it, it's an hard call. I mean, <sighs> if you have mental health issues, there's not a lot on this planet, only the simple, basic things you can do to help you. You should always... Get help if you can. Always talk about your problems. And like I say, just try and have, have confidence in yourself that you can get out of these things. It's not easy, you know? I heard you say on a brilliant discussion you had with, with your old mate, um, our, our mutual friend, Cass Pennant, on his podcast a few years yeah. ago, and he said, where did the violence come from? And you said, quite simply, I didn't have enough love. And and if you don't have enough love in you know shown to you, 
you know, I'm sure your parents did love you, but if you if it's not shown clearly to you, then then that can make you angry and hostile. Do you think that's fair? My my parents loved me to the outside world, but mm. not to my not to myself. I don't ever remember my dad saying he loved me. Um, and I think my mum used to do it in front of other people just for show. Mm. I truly believed I was not a loved person when I was a kid. Sure, they used to do things that people thought, oh, they're good to him, but no. Not what every kid needs. Like I said earlier on, the arm round them, I love you, mate, come on, let's go and do this. And, you know, I never had that. I went with my dad a few times to before he was a Tottenham fan, but I couldn't bear going over there. I can't bear going over there now, to be fair with you, but I will do. Like I've done it every year the last 50 odd years, whatever it is. I've been actually watching West Ham for 65 years next year. I'm, I'll be 69 years old. And what you don't, you never lose the fire in your belly or the fire in your heart, but you lose the fire in your limbs and, and your bits and bobs. It's as simple as that, really. So, you know, I don't, I don't walk away or turn my back on anybody. The anger come from not feeling of not being wanted. I I really wanted to be wanted, you know? And when they said a lot of the um, violence that happened in the 70s and 80s was drink-related, it wasn't. I never took a drink till I was 50 years old because I was training all the time. I was boxing. I was working on the door. I was working. Some weeks I did three jobs. And at the end of the day, um, drink was never a thing with me. And certainly drugs wasn't. Mm. But now it seems like drink and drugs fuels them all. But it don't fuel me. Maybe that's why I can see reason and I have compassion for people. But obviously, as well as that, you're, you know, you say the fire is still there inside of you, but the anger has, has resided. As, you know, there's not as much anger in you as far as oh, I can no, see. No. There must have been once upon a time. Is that just age? Yeah, you're mellow. As you get older, you're mellow. We yeah. all, you know, I know people at other clubs and they're all, they say the same to me. Yeah. You know, my good mate at Aston Villa, Danny Brown. And, it, and he's the same. As we get older, things become more important to you than they was other things you had earlier in your years. I mean, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I know what I am as a person and I'm happy and I'm confident in myself. But sometimes the demons get in and uh, and I don't like that. I like being built a nice person. Yeah, you talk in the book, it's really interesting You talk about build a warrior and build... The, the nice person, like you say, yeah. and you had these two sides of yourself and, and uh, you, you know, but do you regret Bill the Warrior? Because obviously no, no, a lot of your life depended on that, didn't it? No, not at all, because I believe that I had bipolar. I believe that I've had it most of my life and uh, I never went running to the doctor because it's like... Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's like if you have mental health issues, you go to a doctor, he keeps a record. And if you're going for a job and all of a sudden they can pull up your record and say you had mental health issues, you might not get that job. That's why I worked for myself most of my work in life. Yeah. So I didn't have to have that situation. So, you know, if, you, if you're going through a bad period, and I, I, I attempted suicide once and uh, it failed, and I thought I'm never going to do this again. I lost a couple of mates to it. And uh, I decided I, I was, like I said before, I didn't want the demons to win. And so far they haven't, but I've had problems. Um, when my my mate my my good friend Dennis died, I was mates with for over fifty years. I don't mind being as honest and saying I used to cry every day. I missed him so much because I knew him. I was a little bit older. When I, I was at one period in my life, I was on my ass. I didn't have nothing. He looked after me, you know. Yeah, Bill is a few quid, and and I I'm lucky enough that I've known four people like that, and two of them are now dead, and there's two of them still alive, but they're not well, and people that wanted me for me, not for my reputation, you know, I I meet lots of people who say, oh, do you remember this? Well, I was with you here and there, and I think to myself, I don't remember you at all, mate. You know what I mean? But I won't be rude to people. <coughs> Pardon me. I wish I could. You know, I've got a couple of mates, if they come up like that, they tell them to fuck off, but I won't do that. You know what I mean? You have to have respect. You don't get it unless you give it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And and you're well known for that at West Ham. I mean, many times I've seen you trying to get to the game and being mobbed by passers-by. Can't be easy to get to the match a lot of weeks for you. Um, this time next year, we're going to Hollywood. We might yeah. even get our hands in the wet concrete. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> There's a um, there was a, there's a particularly like well known incident in in the late eighties where you and and some of the other um, West Ham mob were um, arrested, put up in court, and it looked very likely that you could be facing custodial sentences yeah. um, as part of uh, sort of Thatcher's kind of fight back against hooliganism. Um, in the end, the the case was thrown out, but you know, reading the book, it made me realise, although I was, I was aware of the case and I've heard of it from other people's perspectives, just how stressful that period was in, in yours and everyone else's life. Uh, my dad was in hospital dying at the time I was in court. We was actually in court for 16 weeks and two days in total. And um, I used to visit my dad before I went to court and afterwards, and then I'd travel home. So it was a long day. And, uh, one day he got really ill and the court allowed me to visit him with two court officials alongside me and I think my dad looked up and saw them and uh, I think it might have broke his heart a bit because yeah. I told him I was, I was 100% my dad knew I was a fighter mm. but he also knew that when they said I was doing it I wasn't doing it mm. because quite simply when my son my oldest boy James who's 38 now was born I didn't want him to grow up without a dad. I didn't want him, want him to know, oh, where's your dad? He's in prison. I didn't want him to have the stigma of all that. 
And uh, so I decided that was the end for me. I can walk away. I walked away. And then they said, no, I didn't. I was still involved and I wasn't. So they come out this cock and bull story that, to be fair, me and you could have made a better story in four hours than what they did against me. It was terrible. Yeah. You know, the things they said was like unreasonable. Uh, we watched Gardner. He had an axe in his hand and he was heard to say, when I shine the axe in the sun, like that's the signal attack. Come on. What have they been watching? Doesn't quite sound right, yeah. There's lots of things like that, especially what did he have on? They said he had a t shirt and tracksuit bombs. Well, where am I going to hide this thing? Yeah. I I, I look like a porn star, wouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) An axe down your trousers. Yeah. Um, But that that must have been a really, really tough time. Yeah. Um, And and it's interesting you saying that it broke your dad's heart. I mean, I was going to ask what what were you when you built this reputation that ultimately went beyond football. People would have known. People yeah. knew who you were, yeah. and they knew what your reputation was. What what was your parents' response to that? Nothing. They right. just accepted it. Right. They just accepted it because in in the end of the day, it was most probably down to what they'd done that led me down that route to start with. Mm. You know, and I don't know that, you know, I don't know that they really cared. I don't think they ever cared. You know, I went to football. I love going to football. I love going to West Ham. I love football now. I go, I go everywhere and watch football matches. It's, that, it's my love. It's it's my passion, you know. If some people like doing other things and that, and I, I say fair play, but football was my passion. I loved it. It helped me. It gave me friends that I've had for life that, you know, sometimes you have a fallout with one or two of them, but at the end of the day, we all make up and, you know, we all get on. There's a really uh, touching bit that I think would surprise lots of people, a story in the book about, you know, your sort of arguably like your biggest individual rival in that scene was obviously, you know, Millwall were, were, your, were your biggest enemy and Tiny... Yeah. Was I don't know whether you'd call him the leader. He was certainly the most prominent figure. Yeah. And there was a really quite touching story about you and him uh, towards the yeah. end of your relationship. Yeah. we. Uh, I had a phone call from a friend of his who was at his bedside. He was dying of cancer. Uh, this friend told me he had a lump the size of a grapefruit on his neck and um, he couldn't talk. And he said, I've got Tiny with me. What can you say to him? Well, what do you say to a person who'd been my enemy for many years? And... I just didn't know what to say. And I said to him, uh, I'm ever so sorry, Louis, you're not well. I wish I could do anything to help you. If I can, I would. Uh, but we, we would always be enemies. But, but for me, you would always be tiny, the lion of Millwall. And my mate said to me, he's crying. He said, he said he's crying. He said, whatever you said to him, because he didn't know what I said to him. And that's the truth. Because um, I don't care who they are, what team they support. I will have respect for everybody. I have respect for every foe and every friend. And nobody can say I ever left anyone in the shit. And I never would. Because that's the way I am. It, why I thought it was such a, a sort of a, a, an amazing story is that it just goes against the sort of stereotypes or assumptions that so many people would yeah. make about so-called hooligans. You know, yeah, yeah. You were you were enemies, yeah. But there was a compassion there. 
Yeah, in, in your heart. Sam, I'm just going to have to put you on one little bit there. You, you've used the word hooligan a few times. Yeah. But you know yourself in a dictionary, what I did was not hooliganism. Hooliganism is smashing people's properties and, and, and being doing things that are not on. All I did was have a fight with people that wanted to fight me. Yeah. That's all I did. So yeah. I was not a hooligan. I was a football supporter who took no shit and never took a backward step. And that will continue with me to the day I die. Yeah, I mean, I'm using that term. I totally, I totally, you know, agree with that uh, 100%, mate, of course I do. Um, I'm using that term because I, I think that there's a caricature that people from outside yeah. of that world yeah, would, would associate with that word. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they would write everyone who'd had a fight at the football. I mean, even some people who don't fight at the football, if you have a drink and you shout and you sing the football, a lot of people just get written off as hooligans. You yeah, know? They do, yeah. And it's, a, it's sort of like a very superficial way of looking at people. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that what you do in the book is you really kind of push against those sort of lazy assumptions that people make. Yeah. And also by talking so openly just about your life and, and your emotions and your own vulnerabilities. You know, there is a lot of younger men who you've talked about, you know, we see them at football and they, and they do a lot of gear and, and they drink too much and perhaps they don't behave in the respectful way that you, that you were known for. And um, a lot of them will look up to you though. And they think that part of being a hard man is not being vulnerable. And that might be what makes their lives even tougher because they they think the worst thing I could ever do was admit to any weakness. So what's your message to young guys like that? My message to them is you can't reinvent the wheel. What's been done has been done. You can't push the clock backwards. Time goes forwards. But some of them, like I say, they live in this world now where they've got to be on the gear. Um, having a drink, yeah, I'm not averse to, to people having a drink. But this gear, I mean, I went in the toilet at Brighton and uh, I thought I was in a drugs den, you know, in all fairness there. And uh, I thought that they would behave. But like my friend said, who's a Brighton supporter, he said Brighton fans were laughing at West Ham. They're calling us the mugs firm. And that hurt me. Yeah. All them years when I've gone out there with my friends and we've tried to do our best to protect each other. And now we've got these scroats that have turned up getting this gear up their nose and they're giving us a bad name, not a good name, you know? Yeah. I find yeah. that hard and I find that hurtful and they know who they are and they know where I am all the time. So if they've got a beef with me, come and see me. Come and see me when you're normal and you're not got the stuff up your nose and then we can have a real good conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a shame. I mean, the drugs are obviously a huge part of it, but you know, you, you've looked and been part of, like, working-class yeah. youth culture in this country for many years. How, how do you perceive it now? What other issues are sort of making, like, young blokes like this now? I mean, let's get it right, Sam. Every morning you pick up, you'll go on the computer, get paper. There's been a stab in here, there, and everywhere. It seems to me now that knife culture is a big, big thing with the drug culture. Because mm. a lot of the kids, they stab each other to get nick the phones, to sell the phones, to buy the drugs. This is a society problem, and it's much, much bigger than what people think. So many people are on it. I said to one girl once, I said, you got last night, she went to a nightclub. I said, is that expensive? She said, I had 25 quid before I went out. So I said, what's that? She said, Charlie. She said, then I only need a couple of bottles of water. You know, they're, 
they're making things so expensive for youngsters now that they have to look for alternatives. And this is why they've turned to drugs. Um, I don't believe the punishment for people having the drugs should be higher. I think the, the punishment for people that are peddling them should be. And what, in my day, if somebody used a knife, they'd be called a coward. Yeah. They would, it wouldn't go down too well, you know? I mean, I'll be honest, once I left, when I first left school, my first job, I was a maintenance man. And the group of maintenance men went out. They, I'd never had a drink. I'd never took a pint of beer. I had 10 pints of draft Guinness, and I noticed they was putting stuff in the Guinness, and that was methylated spirits. So I had a bottle of methylated spirits and 10 pints of Guinness, and there was an argument in Rockford Town Centre, and I pulled my standing knife out on a bloke, never used it, but I pulled it out, and I was ashamed. And I banged into that bloke a while later, him and his mates, and I took a few slaps for what I did. And I was perfectly in order. And if I he was, hope he's alive because I'd like to say thank you because I'd never done that to anyone since and I never would do. Yeah. I, I was wrong. And I admit I was wrong. And that's with me. If I do something wrong, I'll put my hands up. If I don't, I won't. Well, what other regrets when you, look, when you look back now on your life? Are there any other big regrets you have? Yeah, I, I, um, I had regrets that I never kept in contact with my daughter, Kelly, like I should have done. Um, it's it's a regret, and I hope that I can uh, do something to make amends for that. And you know, if we're talking about mental health issues here, I'll give you a fact here that more soldiers who fought in the Falklands Islands War have committed suicide than died in battle. PSD is is a, a terrible, you know, it's a terrible thing. Where and do you think that, I mean, what do you do nowadays to um, to just look after yourself mentally when you have a bad day, when you when um, you feel that maybe Warrior Bill's going to get out of control or whatever? What do you do to look after yourself? I, um, I walk a lot. I, I cycle a lot. Um, I, I look after my son's dog. Um, and I've found peace in my life. And not many people will find the peace that I've got. Mm. It's nothing to do with God or nothing like that, because I've never believed in, I believe there might be something else on this universe, but religion isn't the thing for me. I think that religion is in everybody. We're all our own gods and we should all look after each other. And the world wouldn't be a bad place if everyone was nice to each other, but you ain't going to get it. Um, the signs I've seen recently, it's not good. It's not promising. But for me, I, I, I'm happy with myself. I'm happy with what I did in my life. I wouldn't change much. In fact, I don't think I'd change anything, only my daughter, you know, not seeing her. But, uh, you know, I've got great kids and uh, I've got one granddaughter who I haven't seen. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work on them issues. And uh, hope that before the time comes for me to depart, that I've uh, made peace with everyone. And I know that your sons have grown up. Uh, they, they've not been involved in the same sort of stuff that you were when you were their age. You've raised them very well. They're very successful lads. I mean, what, what were your guiding values in, in raising them? Both my boys love football, both of them. They both played for uh, the great amateur club, Corinthian Casuals. 
My boy Dan is the goalkeeper there. He's played over 507 games. And uh, my other son, James, who's the manager for seven years, he's just stepped down and he's looking for another job, uh, an up-and-coming club where he can take him on, and I believe he will. And you, what I did with my kids was not what happened with me and my parents. I went everywhere with them. If they went football training, I went football training. If they stood in the rain at football training, I would stand in the rain with them. I, I, you know, both my boys done five years in total at West Ham in the academy. Mm. And I went to every single training session, so I used to take them, pick them up from school, take them home. It used to be a round trip of 100 miles each time. And on a Sunday when we used to play like at Norwich or Ipswich, it would be obviously double that. And they knew that wherever they was, I would be behind them and backing them 100%. And I've never had a policeman knock on the door back my boys. My boys, one's a school teacher, one's, one's a builder now to go for the firm I give him. And uh, I love them the bits. And they've made me and their mum so proud of them. And, uh, you know, they're in, they're in relationships with two lovely girls. But, uh, and I wish them all the, all the best. But if they'd have come home with grief. And who's to say I wouldn't have given them a good idea? Because I don't want anyone to say, like father, like son, because it would never happen. Yeah. It's not what I am. It's, it's what, some people portray me, but it's not what I am. I think everyone listening is be very grateful to you for your, your such honesty about yourself. Um, yeah. They don't come much tougher than Bill Gardner. So my message to listeners is that, you know, if he can be vulnerable, then, then anyone can. And it'll do you the world of good. Yeah. Let me, let me just say, like I said earlier on, it's important to talk. It's important to share your problems. Get help if you have to. But always have confidence in yourself and never feel suicidal. Because that's a terrible thing. You know, when I felt it, I was low. My health was bad. I mean, I'd... This week, for instance, I had an operation on Monday and I'm going in tomorrow, Friday, for an operation tomorrow. Mm. My fourth operation this year. So I don't know that I'm going to wake up again. I really don't know. But all I know is I've got confidence that if there is a higher point in, in, in the universe, they look down and say, right, he was an arsehole, but he's not an arsehole anymore. <laughs> and I'm happy with that. Did you, I meant to ask you earlier, actually, have you ever sat down and spoken to a professional in your adult life, like a therapist or something similar, and has that helped? Yeah, I did. The, 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 I did. I went and spoke to a bloke, he's called, a Spanish fella called Sebastian. Mm. But when I went in there to talk to him, he had a quill pen and he had a multicoloured, 30-odd coloured jumper on. And I said, <laughs> do you want to get on the set? Hey? Because I'll be honestly true, he wasn't very well, this bloke. <laughs> I think he took, he took his work to heart, you know? So, you know. He was proper nutter. It was like the biggest quill pen I've ever seen. <laughs> That's incredible. Bloody albatross, I think he had a thing on it. But no, um, I, I went there the once and that was enough for me. I, I, I can handle my own problems. Yeah. And you've got mates you can talk, you've got very good mates who you can sort of talk to when you need to, right? I've got some great mates. I'm, I'm lucky I've been blessed with a lot of mates. My dad once said to me, he said that when you die, if you've had five good friends that would lay their life down on the line for you, you're a rich man. And I yeah. truly believe that. I, I've got lots and lots of friends, but 
I've got a few there that I know if the shit in the fan, they'd be there for me always, you know. And like I say, I've lost two of them now, and I, I found that very hard to lose Dennis and my mate Chaz. It's been a hard, hard thing. Well, Bell, I'm so grateful of your time. So grateful for everything you've done as a West Ham fan, and and uh, you know, and everything you've put in into your book and, and the conversation today is, is sort of fascinating and helpful to me and so many other people. So thank you so much. Yeah, if I've helped one person a day, it's been a, a job well done. But like I said, don't keep it in yourself if you feel bad. Speak to somebody. Good man. Cheers, Bill. Thank you. Thanks, mate. There you have it, Bill Gardner. What a life, what a man. I say that not because of his reputation for violence or the fact that he really is a legend at the club both he and I love, West Ham, but because he's got the courage to be so vulnerable and honest about his real feelings. I think despite the hard life he's lived, he's arrived at a place of peace and self-awareness, and that's somewhere we'd all like to be. Like Bill says, don't hold your bad feelings inside. Talk to someone. Check out Bill's brilliant book, which is called The Man, The Myth, The Legend. I'll add it to the reset reading list on bookshop.org, but it's available everywhere. Thanks, Bill, for coming on The Reset. It was an honour. And thank you lot for listening. If you like this pod, why not subscribe at samdelaney.substack.com. You get the weekly episode email directly to you. Plus, you also get my weekly newsletter on mental health matters. And if you really like this stuff, you can subscribe for a fiver a month for loads of extra exclusive stuff. Either way, Thanks for your support. And until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.